Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And um, hope everybody is continuing to, uh, to, you know, find a way to split the difference and find your way in the middle ground between being alarmist and also being... Uh, some sort of conspiracy theorist because we cannot stop living our lives. We cannot stop being inspiring. We cannot stop living off the land and we cannot stop creating art. And I was taught this by a lot of musicians who've been on the planet a lot longer than me. And I've also been taught this by uh, a, a collective of creatives that materialized out of the Eugene and the Bay Area back in the early 60s, known as the Merry Pranksters. And one of the original Merry Pranksters, um, my next guest, um, has been a huge supporter of mine. Um, He's actually just been a big supporter of humanity in general. Uh, He recognizes that art is to be shared and not judged. And he also recognizes that uh, a lot of the work that he has done and that he has cultivated over time um, may not necessarily... um, be you know enlivening to mainstream America during this time, but will live on long after he is gone, and that is ultimately the essence of life and rebirth, regeneration, and reincarnation. George Walker, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. It's great to be back talking to you again. It's been a while, and I always enjoy our times together. Me too, man. I um. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your concept of, of love and basically the kind of love that um, you think that you're able to uh, bring to the world, at this, your world during this time. Well, love is the energy that makes us all happen. It's, 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 the, it's the driving force. Without it, we're just uh, machines rattling against the noise and, and not going anywhere. If, if we don't have love for each other and share our love, then uh, there's really no point to it. We're, we're just thrashing against each other, and it's just a big contest that nobody wins. It seems to me that that's what we've been dealing with for at least at the, at the political level for the last well, for quite a for quite a while. I mean, can you talk about, um, you know, essentially how how you you know because a lot of times you and Mountain Girl Babs or you and Hassett will go and and you'll do stuff for people. You'll make people laugh. You'll make people think. You'll you will be like acrobats on the stage in some ways, but it's communal. And now in this time, we've been stripped of that communal, that ability to be, to be communal. And I think it's had interesting sort of ramifications for people because even now, I don't even know where I would, I don't even know where I'd go if I could go anywhere. I've been traumatized in my own way. And I wonder how you give love in, in your world during this time when most of the time you are doing it communally with other people. Well, it's a time when, excuse me, it's a time now, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, that we can't just all gather together uh, to feel good. Uh, And you mentioned earlier about doing art. 
And so it's a time when we can do art. Uh, we can create stuff. Uh, maybe just stay at home and, and spend our time uh, in creative activity uh, with the idea that we'll create something that eventually we'll be able to show. And, and when we can gather again, we'll have something. Uh, we will have brought something out of this dark time that will bring light. As I see it, uh, humanity is, is really at a turning point right now in uh, our long, long history. Uh, well, like the famous philosopher Yogi Berra said, when <laughs> that fork uh, can feed us, it can, in both the literal and the figurative sense, we can take this time, we can create stuff out of it, and it's this is going to end uh, one way or another. We're not always going to be like we are right now. This this is a transitory phase. It's going to end. Things are going to get probably not back. I hope they don't go back. I hope they go forward to something new, something better, uh, because we've had problems with the way we've run our world. Uh, so much so that we're really on a dead-end course. Uh, we're using up the planet. We're eating our own homes. Uh, we're getting to the point where we're going to create a world that's no longer able to sustain us. Uh, it's an unsustainable uh, path that we're on, so we have to change. And the old, and you can't change by just telling people do something different. Right. Uh, they won't do it. Uh, they'll just resist. You see it every day. Uh, you tell people, oh man, you're screwed up. You're you've got the wrong ideas, and they say, oh yeah, uh, don't think so. <laughs> and so we we've got to come up with ways to show people, hey, look, there is more to it. There's better stuff that we can do. So I'm staying home. I'm creating artwork. Uh, with the idea that when well, we can get out again, we'll have something to show people that will at least some people will say, hey, wow, far out. Yeah, we can go this direction. We can do this. We don't have to go back to what it was before. Uh, we need to see some evolution in our consciousness. And, and again, you, you don't change people's consciousness by telling them how to think. You do it by changing yourself and showing people, hey, look, this is what I'm doing. This works. And they look at it, and if you do something spectacular, they say, wow, what a trip. I want to try some of that. And maybe out of a thousand people, they'll change a couple. Right. And maybe a couple of them will change a couple. And eventually, it becomes exponential, and we get on a path of positive evolution where human consciousness begins to work for all of us, and rather than just for the few that uh, have their hands on the wheel and, and won't relinquish the, the power that they've gained. So that's what I'm about. I'm, I'm about creating some art, trying to do some stuff uh, that when we can get out and about, I'll say, hey, look, this is what I've been doing. Uh, anybody want to go for a ride? I'm building another bus. I'm building another, uh, a, a near replica of the original further bus. And, uh, we're going to take it on tour. We're going to go and we're going to play concerts. We're going to uh, do more talking to people, uh, putting on shows. Maybe we'll write another play. Who knows uh, what it'll be? Because there's all kinds of people out there that are doing stuff that's going to all work together and help us make a better world when, when this all uh, starts to clear up. Um, I, I was out last year about this time at George Walker's uh, um property in Scapoose, 
Uh, has that? How, can you talk about the evolution of the new bus? I mean, does it have flooring in it now? Is that what? 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 What has changed since that? I, I'm getting. I'm getting very close to uh, being ready to put a floor in, but we're going to leave the floor out until we get the drivetrain in, so we can work from both above and below. I do. Uh, we, we've been uh, cleaning and sandblasting and painting the frame, uh, and it's almost all done now. And I'm. I've already started. Uh, on working on the driveline pieces, and we're going to start fitting that because uh, that that is determined by uh, stuff like the framing, cross members, and so forth. So this is all technical stuff. Uh, we're, we're about ready to start putting pieces together that'll make it a, a, an actual driving piece. What we have now is uh, a frame and a body. Uh, rear axle is in it and ready to go, but front axle, I've got two different front axles. I'm looking at them, scratching my head, saying, okay, which of these am I going to use? Uh, <laughs> trying to upgrade brakes. Uh, we're trying to upgrade everything so that although it's a 1937 vehicle, it's going to uh, have modern uh, safety equipment, modern engine and stuff of that sort. So the, it'll be a reliable driver and we can drive it all over the country and maybe all over the world. And we're already talking to people that are interested in uh, taking a tour of Europe in a year or two. You know, Walker, when I did uh, a series of interviews with Roy Seaburn, um, he talked about the 50s in San Francisco being incredibly violent uh, in terms of law enforcement, police brutality. Um, there was a lot of... Um, I just think the beatniks were involved in a lot of um, pushing back against sort of, I don't know what you would want to say. It's not dissimilar to what we're dealing with now in terms of, you know, I don't want to say fascism, but sort of a police state mentality. Uh, people that I remember Bruce Barthol in our interview, I mean, he talked about walking home from school with a clarinet and he was worried that. You know, he was going to get beaten for being people thought he would be gay or some freak because he's playing an instrument. Um, why did you decide to move to Palo Alto? I mean, I know you went to law school there, but were you hip? Yeah, I went to law school at Stanford, which was my main reason for, for going there at that time. And then you can you talk about how you found Perry Lane? Well, I'd heard about it. Uh, I had met Kesey. Uh, I was really good friends with Mike Hagan, uh, who was another one of the original Mary Pranksters and still is. He's still... Uh, uh, where, uh, he's, dude, I need to get to that. No, he was an, also a University of Oregon cat, too, like you. That was where I met him. I met him at the University of Oregon. Uh, Kesey was already gone. He was four years ahead of me and graduated the year before I came in. But Hagan and Kesey were really close friends. And, and Hagen talked about Kesey a lot. And so well, when he came to town, uh, he was living on Perry Lane at the time. He came to town to visit his family, lived there, and, and to see Hagen and stuff. And so I met him, and, and we became friends. And uh, so I, I, knew about, I knew about Perry Lane. I knew where it was. Uh, one of the first things I did, uh, I think the very first day I arrived in Palo Alto, I got myself a map. I looked at it, I thought, okay, there's Perry Lane, <laughs> which is actually Perry Avenue. And uh, and so I went and I drove by it, and I said, yeah, this looks cool. <laughs> and and so I went and found it, uh, having heard about it. Uh, Hagen talked about it a lot. Kesey talked about it. it. It was famous 
from the 1920s even, I think. Uh, famous people at Stanford. Uh, Thurstein Vogel, what was that cat's name? Thurstein something? Uh, Thorstein Zeblin. Yeah, that, that dude, you were the one that hit me to that cat. Yeah, he's a world famous uh, economist, a Stanford student, uh, and he was he had ideas about uh, the economy that were different, and uh, he wrote books and stuff, and and he was one of the early denizens of Perry Lane, uh, and it just continued. Uh, it, it was the cheapest housing around. It was close. It was right across the road from the Stanford Golf Course. It was a long walk, but a walking distance to classes and at Stanford and, and so it was it was a place that uh, it just attracted people that were of, of that frame of mind it wasn't you know the the high dollar uh, I'm going to be an engineer or a doctor kind of people it was you know the artists and the writers and the people like that that lived there and so uh, you know I, I early on uh, my mind was uh kind of uh, floating toward those types of people. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, how long did you actually, I mean, I would assume, because Casey was always, I think, uh, he liked to, uh, I have to get this, this quote up here, but I mean, basically, how long were you in law school for uh, before you... I was only in law school for a few months, uh, the first term. And at the end of the first term, I realized, you know, this just this, this, isn't really what I want to do with my life, and uh, and I met I, and I was getting more and more into meeting uh, the Perry Lane kind of people. Uh, I, I took some when I first went to Palo Alto, I went I, I went to summer school classes uh, uh, just to kind of get oriented on campus and everything before the fall started. I thought it'd be a good for me to know my way around and have a feeling for stuff. So I took summer school classes. I took a, a couple of philosophy classes. Uh, that's where I met Jane Burton, who's been a lifelong friend. She was a philosophy major there and lived next to Kesey on Perry Lane. Uh, best friends with fake Kesey, Ken's wife. Wow. And so we, be we became good friends. And uh, I realized, you know, this was just more interesting to me, uh, to work my mind around just ideas rather than... Uh, law seemed like such a mechanical thing, you know. It was, it was just, it just wasn't where my mind was going. So I... I, I switched my major to philosophy and uh, started smoking weed and uh, hanging out, uh, ate some peyote uh, on Perry Lane and it snowed that night. And so it just, it just seemed like this was more of a direction. You know, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, I mean, at the time, uh, you know, you had all types of different people living there you could walk through people's back you know sort of just these little tributaries to other people's houses um people were doing a lot of art on in front of the houses um i mean did you think did you feel like babs babs named the pranksters the merry pranksters in is it six what was the day that he named them was it the night you ate peyote it was late, it was late march 1964 uh, to get the exact date, uh, Google the Great Alaska Earthquake. It was that night. Right. So then, but so but but you and then when did you first? I'm sorry. When did you start law school? What year? Uh, in the fall of '61. So can you, I mean the best you can? Can you talk about how you fit, like the roles 
the 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 you know everybody has a multitude of roles. Each prankster has their own nicknames and roles. I mean, can you talk about how you eventually like worked your way up to a to become a group of people that were looking to prank people, uh, looking to and do it in a very friendly way, but to inspire people to be themselves. Because you changed, do you feel like you were working on this uh, Edgar Gacy thing about working on yourself for those three years before you officially became the pranksters, or was that a more of a latent thing? That, that came later uh, for me. Uh, at the time, I, I was just trying to find my way, trying to trying to have a good time, uh, trying to, to to do things that seemed meaningful to me. Uh, and the whole, the whole idea of trying to prank people, that, that just kind of came out of the name. Uh, that wasn't really our, our purpose uh, at that time when we started out. I, we were just trying to do stuff, you know, uh, trying to spring our various kinds of art on the world, uh, really without much in the way of goals. We were just kind of living our lives and doing that. And it all evolved. It evolved over years and decades. Uh, I'm still evolving. I'm, I'm 81 years old, and I'm still evolving. I'm still changing all the time uh, where I'm going, what I'm doing and stuff, trying to uh, get a better handle on how we can make things happen, how we can uh, make things better. Did you, um, were you, when did you get hip to, um, you know, I was going to say, because, um, Mountain Girl came down there, and she was in a in a chemistry biochemistry lab, and broke up with a boyfriend, and was really depressed, and went and took her motorcycle over to St. Michael's Alley, and uh, Robert Hunter was the manager of that coffee shop, and he was very uptight, and he was yelling at her to move her motorcycle, and when she walked in there, uh, there was a dude sitting there, and the other there was another cat, and his name was Neil Cassidy. Uh, and that's how eventually they, he drove her up and down the railroad tracks <laughs> that night and then brought her to Kesey's house. Um, when did you, um, were you hip to St. Michael's Alley? Did you know Robert Hunter at that time? I, I didn't know Hunter. Uh, I, I didn't hang out there a lot, but I knew it. I knew the place. I, I was there some. Uh, I'd met some people that, a lot of local people around there, the Perry Lane crowd, and some of the other people, uh, Peter and Sally Demma, brother and sister, that became friends and uh, hung out with them a lot. And uh, and so I was living around Palo Alto, uh, going to Stanford, and St. Michael's Alley was, was one of the cool places you went. Uh, and so I was there from time to time, but not a lot. Uh, I wasn't a musician, you know, so I wasn't in the music scene, but, uh, you know, and, and, and I got, you know, over the months and years got to know more and more people that uh, had lived around there uh, you know their lives and so forth and so it just it just kind of developed it was a natural thing with uh, you know you hang out with people and you meet the people they hang out with and the people they know and, and it just kind of slowly uh, developed as a group but they're really <laughs> this is pre um this is like pre, uh, you know, psychedelic. I mean, the Grateful, the Warlocks weren't even in existence at this time. People were, I mean, there was still the jug bands and the, uh, there was like uh, music. Music was really still more the, 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 the baby boomer generation 
uh, the the younger cats that came in and really in 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 came in in 67 66 to the summer of love um that had not really taken shape yet i mean it was still primarily um it, it had not at all uh, what i think of i guess now maybe uh quite rock and roll uh, san francisco uh, music had not really happened yet uh you know i i really grew up musically in the 50s uh and a lot of the musicians that I went to see were uh, were black rhythm and blues rock and rollers, uh, <clears throat> Little Richard and Bats Domino and, oh, yeah. and some of those kind of cats. And, and also the jazz musicians. Uh, I, I drove from Eugene to San Francisco a couple of times just to see Coltrane. Wow. I'd drive down for the weekend when I was going to school and I'd drive down for the weekend, leave Friday afternoon and uh, get back Sunday night and, and spend Saturday night at the jazz workshop. I love uh, it, dude. I uh, love listening it. Listening to Coltrane ah. and his band because uh, I love that music so much. And I didn't really get into the rock and roll thing uh, until we started doing the, the acid test. Uh, you know, what I think of is, you know, the second wave of rock and roll. The first wave was in the 50s. You know, we, we had uh, the ones I mentioned, Little Richard and and and, uh, and, uh, and Buddy Holly who I never saw, but I loved his music. I mean, then, th that yeah, term, that, that yeah. was in the mid sixties, uh, the dead, the, the San Francisco scene, the dead and the, the Quicksilver the airplane and yeah. uh, big brother and the holding company and Janice and all that. And, and then, then it just exploded, uh, and, and magnitude and popularity. When I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 1957 in Eugene. And there were almost 2000, uh, kids in my high school and I believe that there were two that had an electric guitar out of 2000 <laughs> kids. There, there was no band uh, there, there was no there wasn't there were no garage bands or anything there were a couple of kids that I got I played some drums and I got together with a couple of kids a few times and uh, we tried to play some of the standard music at the time one kid played piano another one of them was one of the two that had an electric guitar and we'd play some stuff, but, you know, we weren't anything like you'd call good. We weren't a band, and we never performed. We'd just get together on a Sunday afternoon and, and goof around. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it just really hadn't taken off yet. Uh, and it was in the 60s, in the mid-60s, that whole San Francisco scene that just exploded. You know, the, the Beatles were a large part of that. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones came over and uh, just blew everybody away. You know, we'd never seen like it. I, I I wanted to ask you about because we've talked about Dizzy and Rasan. Um with Coltrane, did you recognize was the reason you drove down there because you realized that it was like the closest thing to uh prayer music? Like I mean to me when I listened to Train in that early sixties period, he's praying. I mean, he's just praying. It's just, it's, it's just scales upon scales, and and me, Marty Ballin from the Jefferson Airplane would say that, you know, Train would keep playing. He'd go over and and take a leak in the bathroom, which was on the side of the uh, behind the stage, and he'd still be playing his horn. I mean, can you talk a little bit about um, this? How you felt afterwards? Whether you were addled on any kind of, whether you were smoking weed or not, like. Just sort of the healing, the spiritual healing of of music like that. It's it's so hard to find 
music where everybody's in the moment these days and just soaking up all the vibrations of it all. And you were the, that I have to believe that's why you went there. You know, it, it wasn't that deep for me, quite frankly. I, I, love, I love your take on it, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I was never religious, particularly. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say, I mean, I, I'm talking about you, but you're a spiritual, I mean, you're not reli- You're not a, a dogmatic religion cat, but you're a spiritual no, guy. Uh, at that time, uh, I probably was a lot, I certainly was a lot less so. Sure. Uh, no, I just liked the sound. I just went, be, I had listened to the, to the records. I'd listened to a lot of jazz, and, and I just, I picked up on Coltrane. I said, man, I, I just love the, the sound. Uh, the, it, to me, it was a lot like uh, some of the early rock and roll stuff, only, you know, so much more intricate. You know, the people like Little Richard, you know, screaming rock and roll, the uh, with wild lyrics and, right. and Colton didn't have words, but it it was it was emotional. Uh, I think is probably the term. Uh, it, it it was so much raw emotion uh, in in Coltrane's music. Why? I, I, I would I would know, argue it, that it was similar. It was the raw emotion of the sanctified churches that were all over the South part of the United States when you would have whole. I think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. so. I, I I had no experience of that. I'd never. Uh, I've never been in the South. Of course, uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, you know, I'd seen a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, occasionally you'd, you'd hear some music coming out of there, some of the the, the gospel church music the, and stuff like that. And, and you know, Elvis came out of that, too. Uh, he was a church singer. Uh, and so there was a lot of emotion in, in the Southern black churches that got into the music. And, and it was the emotion that got me more than the spirituality that I got into the, to the whole spiritual feeling of it much later as a, you know, that, that kind of had to get hammered into me. Well, I mean, Walker, I want to, I want to make sure that, I mean, you may or may not be hip to this, but you were clearly, uh, I, I guess maybe the best way to say it is a teenage. I mean, Walker, you know, you're kind of a beatnik, aren't you? I mean, you're a teenage beatnik. Yeah. Yeah. So be, be, because uh, yeah. here's the, here's the thing, you know, because, Little Richard, Fats Domino, those cats, it was not rock and roll. It was R&B, okay? And then when and then they there was this thing called the Payola scandal that came in because a lot of those lyrics were very raunchy. And so all of a sudden you had radio stations taking, you know, Hank Ballard tunes or whatever tunes and and then Pat Boone would be singing them. So you'd have a white yeah. cat sing, they couldn't you know so it wasn't rock and roll what rock is a was a white term for black music. I mean they couldn't te- they couldn't yeah. say to the masses that Elvis was playing R&B he had to play rock okay so that was that was yeah. you know I riff on that were you aware of that uh, to a degree yeah yeah, I, I wasn't really analytical about music <laughs> in those early years yeah I wouldn't uh, have been I either you know <laughs> I, I was just into being a wild teenager, you know, <laughs> hot, hot rods and, and unsuccessfully mostly chasing girls oh, yeah. and uh, listening to uh, music that our parents hated and, and you know, and, and going and, and rude dancing and all that kind of stuff that, uh, you know, made us uh, into the rebellious teenagers, you know, uh, rebel without a cause. Uh, that's me. <laughs> I mean, I mean to drive. I'm just saying, you were you were 
I'm sure you had other things on your schedule, but to drive from Eugene to San Francisco is that's a holy trip to go see John Coltrane at that time. It's a beautiful thing, whether you knew what you were doing or not. Um, I I want to read this from Seaburn and then get your feedback on it. He said, when I got yeah. to when I got to Perry Lane. I stayed in my car for a while. Then I stayed in a little screened-in house at the back of Keezy's. I stayed there for a while and stayed in various outbuildings there and garages and vehicles. I'm not sure the original pranksters coalesced around any concepts. I think that if we coalesced around anything, it was the actual material. Peyote was ordered from Texas, so we ate peyote, and that was the first psychedelic experience I can remember we had as a group. The experience of the drug itself probably did pry open our interest in larger experiences. Kesey was the ringleader of obtaining the peyote. He tried to process that. He liked to cook and get his fingers into everything. I remember him trying to process the peyote, squeeze it, or bake it, because the first thing that it would do was make you throw up. You would get sick to your stomach, and then you'd throw up. Then you could relax a little and get carried off. Um, were you, I mean... Before Soquel, before San Jose, before Muir Beach, before Watts, what were the peyote? The peyote tests were kind of a precursor to the acid. I mean, can you talk about, I, it was a revelatory to me that Kesey was baking this stuff. You know, it's it just, can you talk about sure. the, the communal process, sure. the, the, the pre-acid test, the, the peyote test, so to speak. How did that, when did you, can you talk about your first experience? I mean, you, I know... We vetted the first time you took peyote, but how often? I have to believe these these communal gatherings were starting before '64. Yeah, it's true. Uh, hanging around Perry Lane uh, would often turn into uh, some kind of uh, <laughs> experimental uh, group high. Kesey, besides the peyote, Kesey still had quite a lot of the various uh, pharmaceuticals that he had. Uh, spirit away a lot of that stuff so we were taking various things that nobody even knows what they are right uh, but peyote uh, and, and I took some peyote that uh, Peter and Sally Demma had grown in, in their yard uh, that was my first experience but uh, we I, I think actually Hagen was the one that ordered it up from Texas uh, and actually had it shipped to Perry Lane and he got like a couple of big boxes full of it, just <laughs> dried peyote buttons. And we ended up, Hagen found a, a big uh, iron kettle uh, that probably held 10, 15 gallons and put the peyote in that and boiled it for days. Uh, cooked it and cooked it and cooked it in Kesey's backyard, kept the fire going over it and boiled it down to this tar-like stuff. And there was probably, probably this couple of bushels of peyote buttons were boiled down to about a gallon of this gooey black tar stuff and uh, I, I acquired uh, a box of empty gelatin capsules from the pharmacy and got one of those you know, little plastic uh, squeeze bottles like mustard comes in you know with a pointy tip oh absolutely and, and filled that full of the peyote tar and it, it became real easy just to squeeze off from that uh, into gelatin capsules, and you could you could dose it easily and figure it out. Oh, it seemed like about a half a dozen of those was a really good high, and so I carried that around in my car. And anytime I felt like getting high, we just do up a bunch of capsules. You know, people always talk about it, getting sick. I never ever got sick eating peyote. I've eaten it a lot of times, 
and it never made me sick. Uh, I didn't like the taste of it, which was a lot of the reason for the, the gelatin capsules and boiling it down. That way you didn't have to chew it up. There were times when we just took peyote buttons, the dried peyote buttons, and we'd just chew them up. And it would take a, an hour or so to chew up enough of them to get really high. And it wasn't pleasant, and it made a lot of people sick. But uh, right, it, it never really bothered me. I, I never got sick from it, but uh, it wasn't pleasant. It, it didn't taste good. It was extremely bitter. Well, once you got into, once you got carried off into the metaphysical, was there any correlation? Because I mean, really, I mean, Bill Ham, you had these huge light shows going on at the early acid tests. Um, so you had lights, you had music, and obviously LSD, but. Was there, would you guys play games? Would you guys just sort of like, I mean, what what was, once you guys, guys sort of went out, what what communally was going on uh, amongst the group? Or was it, would you guys just sort of go off in your, or would it be more isolating? No, we'd hang out uh, together. Uh, we'd do communal art projects. and We might uh, paint a wall or a car or, or uh a bunch of furniture or, or a piano. Uh, all, some of these artifacts still exist. There's still the pa- painted piano from Perry Lane that's out at La Honda now. Uh, you know, stuff like we would just do whatever, and, and Kesey would often be the leader, and he would come up with stuff to do. Uh, you know, we'd trapes around the yard uh, doing various artistic kind of stuff. We, we might... Uh, try to play a little music or something or just hang out and, and uh, or, or play some psychological games. Keezy had a couple of games that we developed uh, more out in La Honda than earlier at Prairie Lane. Uh, spin the bottle game where we'd all sit around in a circle and, and do a spin the bottle. <laughs> and there were two different versions of it. There was the attention games that whoever the bottle pointed at Everybody had to give them their undivided attention for some amount of time, you know, like 10 minutes or even as long as 30 minutes. And then the other game was the power game. Uh, it was kind of like king for an hour. Wow. Uh, when the power came to you, you were the leader. You were the boss. And, and you could direct people to do uh, whatever you felt like. Uh, and so we would play games like that. Uh, Lots of psychological games, and it was all, everything, everything that we did uh, in retrospect was about raising our levels of consciousness, achieving new levels of awareness and stuff, uh, new ideas, fresh ideas, fresh ways uh, of dealing with stuff with our minds. Is there, is there, is there, is there something that you specifically, because I, I, I totally understand what you're saying, but is there something that you... How, what was a level of consciousness that, that you can talk about or an enlightening moment when you started to see things completely differently? Is there, is it, can, you, can you personalize that experience? Mostly perceptual. Uh, you just would see things different. You would hear things differently. You know, there, were, there was more colors and more sounds and, uh, and more details and everything. It was just like, boy, you just, there's just more. Uh, your experiences were just, wow, blown open. There's just more going on. Right. Uh, LSD had another element to it which was like it took you to ways of really seeing into reality uh, I, I, I called it seeing Einstein's world where things became uh, relative in the Einsteinian sense where wow. energy and matter were the, really the same thing Wow! Uh, 
consciousness uh, and and it, and you realize the power of consciousness the creative power of consciousness where you could just manifest stuff make things happen just by thinking about it uh, LSD did that more than anything else for me and I, and I think for all of us probably well this is from Seaburn again I mean again George Walker part of the beauty of this early psychedelic <clears throat> period with the bands is that you guys all had connections in the greater Oregon area, Portland and Eugene, Portland 66 Seaburn's talking about seems that the further bus broke down North of San Francisco. Somehow we in the dead ended up in a big moving van. It was cold yep. out. It seems we all rode up in the back of the van. The venue was a room with a big floor made be a stage in the corner I do remember the Grateful Dead playing, and I do remember Pigpen made a point of coming up and saying he liked what I was doing with the liquid lights. Portland was a whole different culture, but Kesey and Walker had friends and contacts up there and knew that it was a center of interest in a growing cultural revolution. Um, I mean, can you talk about a memory from the Portland from the Portland acid test? Because that, that to me, gets kind of glossed over. And also, like, were you... Can you talk about like when something would go askew, uh, like a like the further bus breaking down, how you guys put your collective heads together and even maybe not necessarily in a psychedelic state, were able to solve the problem without things, you know, falling completely apart? Yeah, we, we lost a, a rear wheel bearing. Uh, we'd had some work done on the rear brakes on the bus uh, in, the neighbor, in the neighborhood near La Honda. And the guy screwed up and didn't grease the bearing properly, and we burned out a bearing. And uh, we had to leave the bus with a burned out uh, rear wheel bearing. Uh, oh, just nor I can almost think of the name of the town. It'll come to me. Sure. Here. Maybe names don't often just pop right into my mind. Right. But we, we, had to, we had to leave the bus there, and we rented uh, a truck, a box truck. Uh, I had my own car. I, I had the, this this famous psychedelic Lotus that I was driving, <laughs> and so I drove my own car. And I didn't have to ride in the back of the truck uh, with everybody else. But it ha- I remember it had a cargo net in the back, and people were all they had the, a lot of the instruments piled in the cargo net, and people in the cargo net and on the floor of the back of the of the truck and everything, and drove up to Portland in this truck. Uh, and I don't. I, they must have driven back in it too. I don't remember. Uh, I do remember we were around Eugene for a day or two before we went to Portland, uh, and I rounded up some of my friends uh, and took them uh, up to Portland to do this. I remember uh, one of them was this guy I mentioned earlier uh, who had the electric guitar when I was in high school, uh, and he'd never taken any psychedelics before or since, but he took acid that <laughs> night. And, and he's a classic guitarist. Sure, uh, sure. He, you know, he's he's interested in some kind of 14th century Baroque guitar music that he plays, uh, and and he's very good. But you know, he's not a rock and roll musician, uh, although he is he is very much into jazz. And so we gave him a hit of acid. And at one point, I said uh, to Jerry, "Hey, I got this friend of mine that plays guitar," uh, and he says, "Yeah, bring him up." So I, I stuck my friend Ed on the stage. <laughs> I had acid with his guitar to play with the dead. <laughs> and he'd never played any rock and roll, uh, but he got into it. 
And later, Jerry said, boy, that friend of yours, he really played some interesting stuff. That was cool. <laughs> Dude, he was, did he, did he, but he had, he, he hasn't done acid since, but he considered no, it, he considered it a, a good experience, though? He didn't have a bad trip. Yes, he, he did have a good experience, but he didn't do it again. <laughs> Walker, you know, talking to some cats, it seems to me like, uh, Mirror Beach, or uh, these other acid tests, you know, would you say, would you say that you were, I mean, sometimes you'd hear like, I hear stories about Mountain Girl and Babs, once people had ingested the acid, uh, sort of taking microphones and sort of riffing on, uh, you know, different types of fantasies or, or improvisational things to get people off and uh, obviously, Seaburn had his uh, his light show projectors, and and he was doing that kind of stuff. San Jose, what like in your mind were you just sort of a purveyor of the scene? And I mean, it's hard to be social when you're really dosing hard. W- would you say that you had any kind of um, or over time organically did you find yourself having? certain roles um within the acid tests if it seems to me that you know people like Keezy and babs and maybe even yourself were pretty even though they were you guys were all psychedelicized you were you were conscious of keeping people safe and trying to keep oh, we were yeah we were working uh what we were you what were you working on tell me what you walker was working on what was your work well my first job was uh Acquisition and distribution. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I, I still had money, so I bought the acid, and and I bought it in bulk uh, from the uh, Alfred Leary people. I won't go into details, but I bought it in bulk, and then I had to put it in doses, and I did all that. Uh, and th- this, there's a lot of details to this that will get written. Uh, but anyway, I just want to be clear. I, I just to, hold on. I want to be clear. Uh, the just to, for the record. Because um, you mentioned that Leary had come through, was Owsley involved, or this was Richard Alpert no. and and Leary? No, no, I, I, I we didn't get uh, Owsley got involved later. Yes, uh, toward uh, we did really kind of two sets of acid tests. Uh, we did the Bay Area, which includes the, the Portland one, uh, and then we did L.A. Uh, and Kesey was not there for the whole L.A. tour. Uh, he he got busted. A yeah, he was on the land. Yeah, yeah. And he went into exile in Mexico uh, before we left for for, for L.A. And so Babs uh, took the reins and took control of the thing and kind of made the most the major you know the captain decisions. Yes. Uh, while we we're in L.A. and and that coincided with the time that I ran out of the acid that I had gotten uh, from. Uh, the Alpert Leary crew and Owsley had showed up. And so then we were using the acid we got from Owsley and, and it changed. It was a little bit different. Uh, the whole thing was kind of different. Uh, Kesey wasn't there. Babs was doing things. He did things differently from Kesey. Uh, and so the, we had different kinds of venues uh, and, and we weren't at home anymore. We were living in rental houses, uh, two or three different houses that we rented while we were in LA. Uh, different crews. We ran into Wavy Gravy, who I think was still Hugh Romney at first. Yeah, the, the hog and, farm, yeah. And T- Tiny Tim was running with him at the time. And so we had a, 
a real different kind of a scene. And the LA people were different from the Bay Area people. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a different culture. And, and so, you know, it was a culturally different uh, experience in LA from what it was in, in the Bay Area. I, uh, I had an interview. Everyone was distribution. And then uh, the other things that I did, I danced a lot while the dead played. Oh, yeah. And when the played, I was the drummer in the, in the Pranksters band, which I still maintain is the worst band in the history of music. <laughs> uh, we, we, were, we, we achieved levels of incompetence uh, that are virtually unimaginable. Well, I also think, though, that, that um, you know, just the idea of well, I, well hold on for a second this so i interviewed vic lovell uh, a couple months ago he broke he blew my mind open he told me this story he said when i met ram das he was known as richard alpert i was very disturbed and depressed young man and he got me focused on some kind of reality he was a graduate student at stanford in clinical psychology he listened to right. me and i talked about how unhappy i was as soon as I started seeing him, I felt better. Um, he said to me, he, this is what he said. This is, this is what I was talking about. He, this is Lovell. He said, my depression manifested when I got to college. I wasn't an activist, but I protested McCarthyism. I wasn't entirely clear about what I was protesting. My politics were a little out of line. They were unevolved. I felt my position in the world to be oppressive. I didn't know how fortunate I was. I identified with the... I identified with the movement on campus at Stanford. It was a protest, and what we and what we I wanted was a little more to say about how things were done. That cloud of depression was lifted when I got Ramdas as a psychotherapist. He was the first psychotherapist I ever had. He was at that point a good listener. I maybe later became a clinical psychologist because of him. Um, can you say that you were attracted to the? to the anti-McCarthyism movements of that time? And, and were you hit, was that sort of, that's kind of what I was getting at is that there was a lot of police brutality going on. You were still in Eugene at this time, but I'm just, I, I feel like there, 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 are there, are there, are there an similarities to this sort of anti-truth, anti-reality, anti uh, levels of consciousness that's going on today versus kind of, I know it was a square time. There obviously was no internet. People hadn't even plugged into amplifiers yet. It was a little bit more of a tame time, but do you feel like there are similarities going on uh, between what was happening in that right around 60, 61 and what's happening today? Sociopolitically. Yeah, it's a continuum. Uh, but the, the, it's always been a thing of, of the free spirits against the police or the police against the free spirits. It's always been like you that. Know, the, it's always been like that. I think so. Uh, you know, when I was a, a, a teenager, you know, I was, I was just kind of a hot rod teenager. Uh, and, and we despised the police. You know, they were, they, we were always out, you know, street drag racing and crap like that, you know, or drinking beer when you're not supposed to be drinking because you're underage. And, and the cops were the ones that uh, we had to uh, be, be aware of because, you know, they'd bust us. We'd get in trouble if the cops came around, you know. So, and now there were instances even then, uh, back in the 50s, where uh, 
some people got beat up by the cops. Right. Uh, some even nearly, you know, and so we were aware of it. I was not nearly as political then as I am now. Uh, my political nature has evolved uh, over the decades uh, considerably, and I didn't really think about it that much. I, you know, it was something that was out there, it was going on. I remember watching the McCarthy hearings and not really quite having a sense of what was going on. I, sure. I know it was weird, you know, these guys were arguing about this stuff in weird ways, but I didn't really get what was going on. Uh, I didn't really get that, uh, you know, this whole anti-communism thing was really just uh, the other side of the coin that was fascism. Uh, you mentioned earlier you, you, you kind of shied away from using the term fascism, and, and yep. I wanted to interject. Sure. I, I want to interject and object to your uh, reluctance. No, that's that's uh, fine. No, please, go ahead, please. absolutely fascism that we're seeing today. Uh, Trump is a fascist. The Republicans are fascists. I agree. Uh, there's there's no beating around the bush about it. That's what's going on. Uh, and they're, they are trying to steal the country and everything in it from the people uh, for their own self-aggrandizement and their own uh, wealth. And, and it's, it's not about the people. It's not government for the people. It's government for the wealthy few. It's government for the power powerful and and it's uh, the true definition of fascism is when you unite power in government uh, industry and the military and that is exactly what the Republicans mission is that's exactly what Trump is trying to do and, and succeeding at it's what Mitch McConnell and uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, Bill Barr and, and that gang of people are trying to do to us that, that we are in the midst of a coup this thing that trump is doing now denying the the, the truth of the election i completely agree uh, this I is completely attempt, agree this is absolutely an attempt at a coup d'etat right here in america right now in real time and people who don't see it or deny it uh are helping make that happen uh we have to awaken people to this if we're going to if the american dream as it's called is to survive uh it's in it's in absolute dire danger now today. That's my take on it. Well, well let me ask you a question. I, I, I'm just because I, I I fundamentally agree. Also, it, it takes somebody who's a sociopath and has no empathy and no soul to lead something like this, which is perfect for Donald Trump. But I also wonder. I mean, the one the one uh, because. Clearly, Think how much worse it could be if somebody competent were doing. What oh no! Doing. I mean, listen. The, the, I, I, I mean, somebody and I. Somebody smart. Somebody smart and capable. <laughs> no, I tell my, I tell my older daughter. I say, able, yeah. able to pull stuff off. Think how bad it could get. Well, but that's that's what it could be facing. I do want to say, in 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 the, the array of light for me is that at this point. The 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 brass of the top military people have openly said we don't condone dictators. We have an oath to the Constitution. I, I agree with you about the feckless Republicans. They're fascists. They that's they believe in white power. Trump is just a delusional sociopath and he's leading us into the abyss. The one place that I would say and industry also, they're the new mafia. They're the banksters. But the one the one shining light, and I've heard it from a couple of the brass in the military, and I think the rubber's going to meet the road because I think they're going to have to escort Trump out of the White House. 
I think they're going to have to do it. And they say, we have taken an oath to the Constitution because if the military was in bed with Trump and we had tanks in the streets, you saw what happened when they tried to get people out of the, out in front of the White House. The military guy was... I, a, think, he'll, I think he'll just slink away. A lot of people... I hope he does. I really, For the sake of the country, I hope he does. I, I think that... I don't think that he has the guts to stand up and say, no, I'm not leaving. I, I think he's basically a coward. Most bullies are cowards. Right. And when finally you call their bluff, they slink away and, and, and don't fight. And, and that's what I see Trump doing. He, he's going to make all this noise and, and complain and whine and bitch and do all this stuff uh, right up until the moment when it's, it becomes real. Uh, the election is going to get certified. Uh, the Electoral College is going to vote for Biden. He is going to be the, the absolute president-elect. And then it's going to come down. They're going to have an inauguration. He's going to be installed as president. And Trump will, will not stand up and fight it at that point. He'll slink away to Florida. And then he'll sit in his white castle down there. And he'll continue to say all this shit uh, as long as he can. And hopefully... Uh, some prosecutors will use up his time and his money hiring lawyers to protect himself uh, <laughs> while they prosecute him for all the crimes he's committed. Walker, uh, but here's the Walker. Here's the diabolical part. Because while he does this every day, that he refuses to acknowledge reality, um, all it takes is a couple of deranged people to walk so- out somewhere and cause mass carnage. And I still believe that we are we have some very dark. Not for putting the virus aside, I won't feel comfortable until he slinks away to the White Castle if he does. Because I think that but he's not doing – he knows exactly uh, – whatever he's doing, he still had 73 million people vote for him. And a lot of them yep. are completely in his reality. And my worry is that the more that he continues to fan the flames of the alternative reality is that – potential violence in fact i'm surprised it hasn't happened already and i pray that it doesn't well, it has happened i know it, but not it, not it, since it, the election i'm saying that's all i mean i know it's yeah, yeah. there have been a, there have been uh episodes you know they're not major episodes but there have been episodes there have been people attacked uh by mobs uh and it, it's not much in the news and it's you know we haven't had you know like a major thing like blowing up the train right 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 like right but there are there are instances there are there is violence in the streets there are violent people there are angry violent uptight people out there that are following trump's guideline and they are committing acts of violence and i totally agree with you i think that we will see more and worse episodes uh i just don't see any other way out of it uh that it's going to happen because there are these people you know it's the anger that unites them uh they don't even know what Trump's politics really are. They don't. And they don't even, they don't care. No, they don't. Of those 72 million, uh, I doubt there's a million of them who understand. I, I think all the rest of them are just angry, upset people. Uh, here's the thing. These, there's this undercurrent of people, and, and it's a lot of them. It's, it's not a majority, but it's a large minority of people who are really dissatisfied. Uh, they've gotten a raw deal, and that's the, that's about as far as their mind goes. They're, we've got a raw deal here, man. It used to be better, and now it's worse. We're getting to the people that are actually their oppressors. 
there's a few people that are actually benefit from this. Uh, you know, the billionaires, the, the corporate people, the people that own a lot of stock, the, the investor class. Uh, the, there's a lot of cynical investor class people who really actually do benefit in the narrow sense. You know, the day-to-day -day, uh, bottom line, dollar sign, uh, bottom line for them, they're better off. There are people that are making money, lots and lots and lots and lots of money off of this scam that Trump is running uh, to the detriment of all the rest of us. And, and, and a huge bunch of this, all the rest of us, uh, close to half of us, they're just mad. They know that they've been burned. They're mad. Uh, Trump is like throws gasoline on the fire and he makes and he gives them a way to vent their anger. And they vented at the exact wrong people. Uh, but nonetheless, they do it, and that's what we're facing. And, and turning that around is going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of doing. It's going to take a, a lot of, of understanding and a lot of, of love, because love is the answer to this thing. As long as we keep being angry and hating each other and attacking each other, it's just throw a punch, throw a punch. You throw, oh, you hit me. I'm going to hit you back. Oh, you hit me again. I'm going to hit you back again. Oh, you hit me another time. I'm going to hit you back another time. And that's where we are in America today. We're just bashing away at each other. And, and there's no attempt to try to understand, to try to, to, to throw something other than, than gasoline on the fire. And Trump is the absolute worst of anybody at doing this. Let me ask you a question. How, so, <clears throat> what would be the Walker, um, cocktail not to deal with the 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 pitchfork cats because i think they're a lost cause um i'm talking about they can't, so, uh, let me interrupt they can't be a lost cause we can't give up on half our people be, uh, because if we do they'll be there forever and it'll never get better. no no okay so yeah i mean i i, I, I i'm not going to say half because what you talked about before are, the, are these people that i feel are the difference makers these people that at this point only are transactional people they're getting richer because of somebody therefore they support him they 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 either don't look at his the moral uh ineptitude or the callousness or the or the depravity they just see themselves getting it they're they, they are transactional people he's helping me yeah. i will vote for him how do you, how do you how can you work what would you how would you approach cats like that? I mean, I think back to the the Vietnam protest that you talked about, uh, you know, where you had, you know, Kesey got up and he said, well, everybody with buttons on their lapel, they're the FBI agents. And then he broke into home on the range. It sounds idealistic. It broke all the tension. I mean, how yeah. do you awaken people whose only self-worth is their bank account? Uh. I don't know that you can. I, th I think we just have to wrest the power away from them. Uh, and the way you do that is by voting. Uh, I was saying before the election, with all the ongoing attempts by Trump and the Republicans to steal another election, I said, this is the situation. It's easy to steal an election. It's hard, much harder to steal a landslide. Uh, <laughs> and here you have it. We have, much as they deny it, this election was not close. This was a landslide by Trump's own definition. Uh, this was a landslide victory for the left. Uh, and we have to keep doing that. We have to keep people in, engaged, keep people involved. We have to get to the young people uh, to explain to everybody you can uh, what it is that's really going on. 
and that you have to get out and vote and take the power away from these people, put that power in the hands of the people that will work for the people, and not just for the, the wealthy few who pay the money to the Congress so they can keep getting reelected. Who do you, uh, who do you yeah, think, who do you, yeah. Billion dollars, and with his billion dollars, he can buy a congressman for a few million, and it's a damn good investment because it'll make him another five billion. And, and that's the world we live in, and we have to take that away from them. And, and they won't give it away. They will not give it up. They just won't. Because, like you say, they're transactional and they're winning. Uh, so we have to we have to grab the reins and put people in there who will fix it. That, that's our only hope. And the way to do that is to enlighten people, uh, get people to understand what's going on, get people to realize, hey, you know, we can be loving beings. We can create a world that works. Uh, and kids can do it. Greta she's made a difference. At 15, uh, from clear over on the other side of the world, she's made a difference yeah. uh, by just standing up and telling the truth. And, and so if one can do it, 10 can do it, 100 can do it, 1,000 can do it. And if each one of those gets another 10, it won't take long. You know, in a generation, we can turn this back around. You believe that the angry people are more malleable and, and potentially um, salvageable than the, the, the greed transactional cats? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you diffuse? Let's just talk about this. The like, what would you do? Let's just say 10, 10, 10 angry cat Trumpers hear this interview and they stomp over to Scapoose and enter into the Walker abode. How are you going to disarm them so that they are all of a sudden out of their their heart emotion, their heart mind, and you get to, how do you get them into the into the spirit mind short of of dosing them? Well. Dosing them may be the way, uh, but, but I, would, I wouldn't dose anybody. Uh, well, there are people I would dose. But yeah. Generally speaking, you don't dose people uh, without... Unknowingly, their, yes, uh, I know. Without their uh, agreeing to it. Uh, but you offer them stuff. Uh, hand them a paintbrush. Say, here, help me paint this. Oh. Uh, give them something to do. Say, hey, man, uh, welcome. Hang out. See what we're doing. Can you dig this? And if they're just there to cause trouble, then you grab a gun and say, "Get the fuck out of here." <laughs> Walker, you know, before but, but Walker, but I want this is it must be so surreal. You're not part of the. It must be sur- so surreal on so many levels because we're dealing with, like you say, a modern day coup in this country. The one thing I wanted you to talk about before we wrap up this session is. Um, I was transcribing my interview with uh, with Dr. Larry Brilliant, who we see on CNN all the time now, um, and was a, a big part of um, the eradication of smallpox in India back in the early uh-huh. '70s. And at the time, um, you know, you could bring uh, nuns and priests and rabbis and spiritual people to these parts of the world, um, the eastern East India. Uh, the Middle East. I mean, there were the the, the early '60s jazzers talk about Buddy Rich going on over on these military planes and playing these wild, bizarre concerts with women with pigeons coming out of them. The point is, we were those those countries were quote unquote in the dark, but Americans could still go there, connect with those cultures, connect with the people. You yourself went to Egypt with the Grateful Dead in '78. 
And I feel like, like you said, everything today is quantified. If, if you can't quantify something with data, then our society has said it is useless and not really valuable. That's sort of the issue. These cultures, the Egypt, the timeless cultures of Egypt, India, East Asia, you know, can you, we, we Americans couldn't go there anymore and do what you did in 78. They just couldn't do it. It's too dangerous. And I just wonder if you can talk about the essence of us as uh, as as mankind as one ra- as one humanity and what were those the, the Egyptians that you did encounter even though maybe you didn't speak the native language um why how you guys were able to get along and 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 relate to each other because like that's the other issue is the whole world is at war with each other right now it's not just the united states for, for one thing uh, most of the people there are poor uh, you know, uh, oh, Egypt, Egypt uh, there are people there with, with vast wealth, like everywhere, but most Egyptians are poor. Mm-hmm. And, and poor people are a lot easier to get along with than the wealthy, uh, for some reason. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it, right. Uh, if, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're in need, you're a lot li- more liable to get help from somebody who can't afford it than you are from somebody who's wealthy. Huh. That's pretty humbling. That's just a fact. Yeah, that's humbling. Maybe that's why they're poor because they're they're not busy uh, taking it, just taking, taking, taking. Uh, you're, you, we're not going to reach everybody all at once. Uh, that's just not going to happen. We're not going to have just a sudden tsunami of awareness where the entire world is suddenly enlightened. Enlighten two people that will each enlighten two people. Eventually, it'll get there. Yeah. If you can enlighten five people, and each of them invite, enlightens five people, it'll get there a lot faster, really a lot faster. Uh, the power of exponential growth, uh, for you mathematicians out there, <laughs> understand what I'm talking about, uh, it can grow very rapidly. Uh, and so I, I think the thing to do is when you have an opportunity to reach somebody, uh, reach them with love and understanding and with a hope that you can show them something that they can make their own life better uh, by just letting go of stuff that that's making uh, making them so unhappy so uh, uptight and, and, and greedy and unsatisfied uh, America has become a very unsatisfied country uh, we're still among the wealthier countries in the world uh, although in some respects of the so-called developed worlds were dead last, you know, like in stuff like healthcare and uh, right. e- equality of uh, resources, income, and so forth like that. Uh, but we're still, you know, we still have a lot of capability here. We've given so much of it away uh, because the wealthy people who have the reins have taken the means of production elsewhere so they can get it done cheaper and make more profit and uh, throw people out in the streets that used to work here. You know, and we we have essentially uh, abdicated our role as the, uh, the technological and industrial uh, giants of the world. We're no longer that. Uh, we, we gave that away uh, to the few wealthiest Americans who took it elsewhere and uh, just come here to, to live like uh, kings and royalty and so forth. Uh, 
I remember back in the 60s, uh, I, I was not political really uh, much at all. Right. So well, probably Nixon uh, probably turned me political. But I remember Kesey said, and Cassidy was, was very political. He was always talking about uh, the danger of fascism, the danger of uh, developing into a police state. Uh, he was very conscious of uh, the Nazi German uh Takeover and, and seeing that happening here, and, and Kizzy said uh, that uh, the goal of those people in power, and he was talking about primarily uh, the right wing, the Republicans. He said they want to return America to a state of uh, serfdom, you know, like the Middle Ages, the absolutely. Dark Ages. Absolutely, and, and I, I didn't believe him at the time. I thought I thought that he was uh, being just crazy at the time. That, you know, that's not happening here. And I realize now that he was absolutely right, that that was exactly what was going on. And and it's continued to go on, and it's grown and grown. Because it, it's easy, if you take stuff away from people and they're pissed off, it's, it's real easy, and you do it in the dark, it's real easy to point fingers and blame somebody other than yourself uh, when you've done it. And so that's what's happened. The Republicans and the fascists in America have taken over and then they've blamed the left. I hear people, a, a lot of these people that are Trump supporters and stuff, and, and they all talk in vague generalities. Uh, they never point at specific stuff that's actually real. They're just, uh, they're just so dissatisfied and, and so angry about stuff, and they blame leftists. Well, and then and then the other thing is that they they they're reactionary because they just That's they, what I'm they just about. parrot they parrot phrases that they hear yes. that get them fired. Yes. But there's no fact. But there's nothing. There's no you go below the there's nothing below the surface. So there's there's just no no yeah. substance. No there's substance. No substance yeah. at all, Jake. Right. Right. It's all it's all just empty mouthing of words to uh, express a vague dissatisfaction and anger. Uh, that they don't even have a real clear uh, target for it. It's just they're just angry and 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 they feel like they've been burned and they have, and they don't know who they they're blaming the wrong people all the time. If you <laughs> if you if you it's so it's so funny because I just interviewed Phil Phil Dietz and he said that you know like and Babs has told me this before but you know uh, Kesey said you know we. We fell in the crack between the beatniks and the hippies. We were the crackers. And I I asked you, Walker, what made, you know, I asked Dietz. I said, what separated, what made the pranksters different from the beats and different from the hippies? And he said, he said LSD. Now, the thing is, hippies took a lot of LSD. So I'm going to ask you, being that you guys are your own uh, cultural phenomena. What was se- what separated the the pranksters from the beatniks, and what made the pranksters different from the hippies? Well, the one obvious thing is the one obvious thing is age. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, really? I mean, because well, I mean, you we, were yeah. We we really were right in between. Uh, we were younger than the beats and older than most of the hippies. Right. Uh, the, hippie, the hippies were the, the, all this, just a, a vast army of really young people who were really uh, unprepared for the world. We had all had a few years of experience, uh, not that we were 
so greatly prepared, but we at least had some sense of of a reality of a society uh, that we were bound up in, and we were we were not dropouts. You know, the thing that Larry said: tune in, turn on, and drop out. We were not dropouts. We were more like drop-ins. Right. Uh, and and so we weren't throwing away everything of society. Uh, so that made us different from a lot of the hippies who were just like, hey, screw everything, man. I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to go off and, and, and be this other way. And you could see it was doomed. It wasn't going to work because nobody was prepared. Nobody was prepared to, to actually live life. And we were a little bit better prepared to live life. We were... We were into a whole new generation of drugs from what the, the beats were using. And, and so we, we were literally in between uh, in terms just of our age and our experience. And, and I think that, as much as anything, is why we fell in that crack in between, because that's where we were. That's where we lived. George Walker, you, are, you and Babs continue to inspire me uh, in so many ways. Uh, I, I'd love to throw Hagen in there, but... He just won't come out of – I can't get a hold of him. Um, Mountain Girl, you guys are so important um, because, honestly, the – I mean, I don't mind if you guys don't exit stage left. I'm waiting for the boomers to exit stage. I mean, these these hippie – this hippie generation with the – the other side of the hippie generation was the fascists, and, and they continue to dominate our political – uh, landscape and and they don't want to. They've messed it up so much, and they still don't want to leave. And I just, I I feel like you guys are such an important. Uh, you demystify, uh, you know, um, people. You can deflate people's egos quickly um, just by being yourselves. And is there going to be any semblance? You know, one of the most touching things that happened last year was that. George Walker uh, gifted me a, a ticket to the um, Creamery Holiday Party, which is basically a year ago. It was the last time I saw you. I got in. I got to meet all these people that I had really never really even knew existed. I mean, I knew their names, but I got to meet Annabelle Garcia and Mountain Girl and, and, and all these Dear Dick and all these wild characters and so many just such a deep well reservoir of insanity. Um, is there any... Are you going to be able to see anybody? Is there going to be any kind of celebrations this year or virtual or people are just going to be kind of hiding away? Well, by this year, if you mean 2020, 20... we don't have much time left to do much this year. Well, no, is there uh, going to be a creamery it's... party or anything? Is there going to be any kind of party or anything like that? Oh, I don't know. I, I would guess not. Uh, I, I would think not. I, I think that this the COVID thing right now, is going to get worse before it gets better, mm-hmm. uh, and it's and, and I'm not talking about hours. I'm talking about weeks and maybe months. Sure. Uh, and and so the rest of this year, I think we're going to see things more locked down, more problems, more people getting sick, more people dying. I, I think we're going to see the the COVID uh, plague uh, run more rampant before we get it under control. Uh, the Trump administration is doing everything they can to thwart all the efforts of uh, the incoming Biden administration to fix stuff. They're trying to throw as many roadblocks in their way as they can. They're sabotaging the country in as many ways as they can. And it's going to take time to overcome that. It's not going to happen. And, and Biden's not even going to be president until next year. Right. And so, and so I, I do not see improvement on a big scale at all 
in the immediate future, you know, the next coming several weeks to probably through the winter. I think that, that we could be going to be able to go out on tour and do stuff, entertain, play music, do the stuff that we love to do and to start reach out to people. Uh, it's like anything that happens, uh, anything that gets people's attention. And this certainly has done that uh, is an opportunity. Uh, even bad stuff is an opportunity because people start to pay attention. And if, if you can say the right thing at the right time to the right person, you can make a difference. Uh, by being in your, yourself in the right place in your mind uh, and, and having and coming with with love for people coming with positive attitude uh, here's the thing Jake uh, Go ahead. most of my friends now are much younger than me hmm. I, I have lots of friends in their 30s and 40s now and, and even in their 20s so cool and there are more people now uh, that are becoming enlightened than there were in the 60s. Uh, Kesey talked about, about a wave. He said, we didn't create the 60s. We didn't create all this. Uh, it was just a wave of consciousness that occurred somehow in the universe. And we were there and saw it happening. And we rode that wave like surfers. Uh, I was just watching this morning. I was watching a surfing contest from Maui. Uh, they were surfing at the Honolulu Bay, uh, where we used to anchor the Flying Cloud when I was sailing there. Whoa. It's one of the best surf spots in the whole world, and the waves were beautiful today. Uh, waves come in sets, and they were talking about, oh, they're out there riding now uh, in, the set, in the thing, waiting for the next set. Uh, and all kinds of waves. Everything that happens, happens in waves. Waveform is universal in, in everything. Uh, and so... Everything that happens. You think is, what is, I want to ask you though. Wave action and, and include, including consciousness, and so now uh, we are about to see. We are seeing a, a, a big set of consciousness waves that's been coming now for a couple of years, uh, and it's still building. Uh, this happens on a on a huge scale. It takes years to develop. Uh, the 60s didn't just happen in the 60s. The 60s came out of the 50s and out of the 40s and out of the 30s. Uh, it started probably with the Great Depression. Uh, it was what led to the 60s. And just like the stuff that's happening now is going is leading to a big set of energy waves of the of the 2030s and the 40s and 50s. And things are going to happen. And and if we again reach to these people and show them. Here's a way to go, like we did in the 60s. We, we put on acid tests and said, hey, here's a way to go, people. Uh, look at this. Right. See how this feels. Right. And people came, and they said, wow, this is a trip. <laughs> and pretty soon there, there were a million hippies. Well, we started with a handful of people, and now there are thousands. And we're going to start this next wave with thousands of people in the lineup to catch the waves. And, and we're going to see waves of energy like nobody has imagined in maybe thousands and thousands of years. We're going to see something happen. And if we can, in some way, reach the people that are going to direct this and say, hey, look, this could be really good. Uh, I'm enthusiastic. I'm optimistic that we can make this great transition into a better world that we've been talking about for thousands of years. It's time, man. It's now. Well, I just I want to be clear. I mean, now. you, you, you. What is what gives you faith? Because you said the hippies were 
had no direction and were feckless and you could see it was not going to be a sustainable move. They had energy. They no, no, but I, my, my question is what, what, what gives you faith that younger people who are under crushing costs of debt, higher cost of living than ever before, these are people that you're friends with today, what gives you uh, uh, faith that they are more prepared for the long run than the hippies were because the hippie movement fell apart? I've seen it. Uh, that's what gives me faith. I, I went out a couple, about three, four years ago. Uh, I had pretty much given up. I was just kind of living out my years right. and, and trying to trying to take care of my life and not doing a very good job of it and just kind of existing. And then I went out and saw some of this. I, and I, I was unaware that there were festivals, music and, and art and, and trade festivals of young people, young creative people all over the country, all summer, every weekend, in every county of America. You couldn't go to every festival in your county on a given weekend because there were too many of them, and it was all over the country, and they were full of these. But you can't now. Uh, like you say, rents are high, food right. is high, so right. you have to have means. Well, people have jobs. They have homes. They have land. They have businesses. Some of them have good businesses. They're employing people. And then they go off and they party on the weekend at these festivals. And then they go home uh, back to their mundane realities for the week, and, and they keep it going. And so people are prepared. People are prepared to survive. People are prepared to make their way in the world. They, there, are, there are people with more experience. There are people that are in their 30s rather than their teens. There, there are people that understand that you've got to make it. They've got families. They're taking care of their families. They're not just saying, oh, the heck with it, and, and just tripping out and losing it. They have not dropped out. Uh, they're dropping in. And that, that's what gives me the faith, is, is that people are much, much better prepared this time around. And I think that if we do this properly, if we don't make a bunch of stupid mistakes, I think that we can surf this wave all the way to the beach and find ourselves standing on the beach in the sun. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. George Walker, the driver, thank you, brother, for being an inspiration to everybody. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Jake, for uh, helping spread the word. It takes all of us. Hey, man. Uh, I, and, dude, and I'm, all about, can, I'm all about inspire. If I inspire one person per day with the stuff uh, I put you, up. You inspire a lot. Yeah, I know. You're so I, I know. I mean, I'm so. Yeah. Well, much love to you, Walker. And uh, we'll talk soon. Much love, much love back at you, Jake, and to all you listeners out there. Much love. Uh, keep the message. Keep the love. Further. Be good. Go further. Yeah, go further. Later, man. Later. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, it's always great to connect with an original prankster. Um, George Walker, really one of the best cats I've ever met. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, the, uh, the prankster scene is uh, still alive um, and it takes people like Walker who are inclusive people and want to bring everybody into the mix, uh, to keep it going. Uh, don't get too high on yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. Take what you do seriously. That's my message for today. Thanks to Jerry Bourget and George Walker. We'll see you tomorrow on the Jake Feinberg show.